Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. There are some people whose energy enters a room even before they do. Today's guest is one of those people. Her face lights up, her smile is contagious and her warmth is always present. Kind of makes you think, I'll have whatever she's having. Kemi has had an extraordinary life, moving from Nigeria to England where she lived with over five foster families. It's some of these early experiences that have informed her work now, which is holding space for people as a professional coach, a speaker and an author. She's worked in the wellness industry for more than 20 years, working with big organisations including PricewaterhouseCooper, Lululemon and Dermalogica, just to name a few. In this episode, we unpack how to ask for what you need in life and how it can be a gift when you do. Kemi shares the importance of realising that you have the permission to create the life that you want and quit with the excuses. And she also talks about her latest love, which involves running ridiculously long distances through bushes and trails and how this fuels her energy. Jammed packed with aha moments, challenges and new ways of seeing things, this is an episode that you want to put everything aside and really focus on. Have your pens at the ready as you hear from the incredible Kemi Nekvapil. Kemi, it is such a delight to have you in studio. It is a delight to be here, Ali. Yeah, look, you, it's a bit cool here in Melbourne, I've got to say. <laughs> it is. I've got all my wool on, three yeah. layers of wool. Yep. Um, but I feel like we're pretty cosy in here. I want to start with a question. If people go to your website and go to the About You page, yes. I actually want to read out the very first line. And the line is, when I landed with my fifth set of foster parents at the age of 13, I learnt for the first time what choice was. Tell me, what did you learn about choice at 13? I learnt that it was a gift. I never felt that I had experienced that before, that I could actually have agency over my choices and my life. And I think that's what many people that have experienced foster care have because you're moved around and you, you know, as a child, you obviously don't get a say. And so I just suddenly felt for the first time, oh my goodness, if I get to have this in my life, I think I'm going to keep this one. So for 13 years, that just hadn't been there? It hadn't been my experience. I think when your parents are constantly changing, you don't know when they're going to change. You don't know why they've changed. Um, You definitely don't feel like you have any sense of choice about what's happening to you. And I very much felt that everything was always so fragile. Like I just had to make sure that I was feeling very, that that I was on my top game, on my A game, that I was good all the time so that I wouldn't get moved on again and again and again. So there wasn't much choice. It was more a case of just do what you need to do so that you can stay here. So this being the fifth experience of that, (laughs) which would have been (laughs) full on for for any child at the age of 13. What was different? What was it about this moment that you realised about choice? I 
I think it was a very small moment, actually, which I, which I have shared, but some of your listeners may not, not have heard it. I, I landed with them with two plastic bags of my belongings the day before, and my new foster mum said to me, we need to go out and buy some things for you. And um, we went to the local Marks and Spencers, and I'm still an avid Marks and Spencers fan. Maybe it was ingrained in that moment, brand loyalty. And um, she's, I needed to get new underwear, and she asked me to choose the colour of the underwear I wanted. And I didn't really get her question. And, and she sort of said, you know, which, which colour underwear do you want? And I sort of was looking at her and she said, I want you to choose. And it was that moment. And it felt to me suddenly like everything had slowed down and it just felt like I've just been given something I've never been given before, which is agency and such a small thing, but it obviously informs very much the work that I do now, yes. <laughs> you know, as, as a coach to remind everyone that we always have choice and that we, and we do have agency over our lives. Not everyone does, but most of us do have some sort of agency and all of us have choice. That's a huge moment. And I imagine, you know, even going back to that, did it take you a while to make that choice? Was it um, a bit overwhelming? I chose, the, I chose the multicoloured knickers, not the pink ones. <laughs> I love it. I love all the colours. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I just remember that being a defining moment at the moment. I don't necessarily know that I knew the weight of it then at 13, but it definitely gave me a different way of navigating things. And then being with that family as well, I was then always given choice in so many things. What do you want to do when you leave school? What do you want to, we think you could do this, but what do you think? Like it was just a whole new way of communicating for me. So did that almost become a bit of a thing, I guess, learning, like how to make oh, those choices? it became choices? an adventure. Mm. Like it, 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 suddenly I could, I could choose, you know, it, it, it came an adventure. And I think for those people that have grown up, always know that they could choose. It's, you know, it's not a big thing. Um, but for those of us that haven't grown up with that, it suddenly becomes, wow, I really get a say. Okay, what am I going to say? Was there any part of you at all, and this may not be your 13-year-old self, but mm. even now reflecting back, where there's a bit of grief for the loss of the choices that you might have had up until 13? No, I actually, I'm not really someone that has regret. So what I've noticed, just I said to my husband about six months ago, I said, I've just realised something. He said, well, I said, I'm not nostalgic. So, which is definitely part of the way that I was raised in my childhood. When you're moved on, it's kind of, well, that's gone. Okay, new family, new mum and dad, hello. Oh, well, that's gone, new mum and dad, okay, hello. So I, when people ask me, oh, what were you doing at this age? I always have to think, what foster parents were I with? That's always my first port of call. Okay. And depending on how long I was with them for, depends on whether or not I can recollect that memory. So for me, you know, people have mindfulness practice and be in the present. I've always been in the present. I'm not someone that lives in the past. I've always been the case of from here to next, to next, to next, to next, which means I'm not that nostalgic. I'll have friends say, do you remember that time when we, and I'll be like, no. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can tell you what I'm doing tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I know what I'm doing now yeah. and I'm here with you. And obviously there are some memories that I do have, but when you don't, when I first married, when I married my husband, he comes from a very well-connected family. They all grew up together. And I remember sitting around the dinner table with them one evening and, like, his sister saying, oh, do you remember that time when we something? And then the younger brother said, yeah, and you. And the dad said, yes. And I remember because that was – and I suddenly had a revelation then of that's one reason why I don't remember some of my childhood because mm. I haven't had the consistent narration of other people telling me. And so I, you know, have what I have and I have my sister who was raised with me up until 13 because then we were separated – but otherwise, it, it kind of happened and that was it. 
you're on to the next thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, which once is, again informs my work. <laughs> yeah, which is powerful. And yeah. I want to come back to, you know, the way that it informs your work. Mm. What landed you in, in foster care? So my um, parents, I have Nigerian heritage, were very well-to-do middle-class Nigerians. And at the time, and this is like a whole other interview on colonisation and what people of colour have been told by, you know, the Western world. But we, you know, very much believe that if my children are going to be of any worth, they need to have an English education. And so there were many children in the 70s in Nigeria that were sent to England. And it was basically illegal fostering. There was no vetting of any of the foster parents that we landed with. And it came from the same place as most parents' vision for their children, which is this is the best choice I'm making for my children. Mm. And the plan was that we would go back to Nigeria and become the doctors and the lawyers. I, I was a disappointment. I married a lawyer. So my mum was kind of like, mum, I married one. Um, but I didn't become a lawyer. Um, and that was the plan. But what happened, because it wasn't a vetted system, a lot of children got lost. A lot of children ended up homeless. Myself, my sister had our time as well where we had no fixed abode and we were just couch surfing. Um, just before I landed, actually, my fifth set of foster parents. Um, so in some ways it worked out well because I'm a functioning human being and that isn't the story of everyone that ended up, you know, that started there. Um, and, you know, it's as a mother now, I definitely want the best for my children. And I know that, you know, for my, for my mum at the time, it was definitely the best decision that she felt that she could make. And she's just incredibly grateful. And I think we all are that we all actually have come together very well as a family, back together. So I actually have one of my sisters living with us now in Australia. She's living with us for a year and we've never lived together. Wow. You know, we're 10 years difference. Yes. She's been with us for four months and um, she's still here, so it must be going well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but good. what's interesting about that is that we, have, we don't have a shared history. No, it's a very different memory. Very so. different memory. So we're constantly learning about each other. Um, mm. She had a period where she was schooled in Nigeria um, at a much older age. I was very young when I was schooled in Nigeria and I don't really remember. Um, so it's just in, she speaks the language, Yoruba, which is the tribe that my family are from. I don't have any of that language at all. So she's introducing that into our family and my, my children are sort of picking up the, the bits they think are cool, you know, yes, yeah, <laughs> they'll just yeah. kind of throw out. <laughs> yeah, so, it's, um, so that, was, that was why, you know, I think sometimes people think with foster care it's always that there's something emotionally or financially wrong with the parents and in this case that wasn't the case. Yeah. And I imagine you also have... Um kind of learning the the experiences of your parents through different eyes. As yeah, well, absolutely, that, absolutely that because we don't have this shared history. So mm. I actually said to my, well, mummy, so when you're Nigerian, you always call your parents mummy and daddy, doesn't matter how old you are. Right. Um, when I was last in England, I said to her, mummy, I think I need to start bringing a recorder next time I come so I can hear the stories. And she said, you should. Mm. You know, I think we're both aware as she's getting old. She's a young mum, actually. But I think as we're both getting older, just realising that there is a gap in our learning of our knowledge of each other and that we want to bridge that gap. Mm. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. Look, a big part of your work and, and the work that you do is about conversations and, mm. and connecting with people. And you've touched on a few things around how those early experiences have informed the work that you do now, mm, one mm. around agency and, and choice and the other one about being really, really present. Mm. Uh, are there other ways that those early experiences have informed the things that matter to you now? Well, it's interesting because I think that all of our childhoods inform the work that we do. You know, I don't think I've ever met anyone either as a reaction against 
you know, or as an, an absolute extension of what it is. So for me, definitely feeling disempowered as a child, I feel very blessed to work in a space where I get to empower others. And, you know, for me, empowering as in that reminding people that they have what they need. You know, in the thick of life, sometimes we forget that we have the resources or we don't have the space to have clear thought. Um, for me as a coach, one of the privileges I have is to create a space of no judgment. And I think that a lot of us don't have that. You know, I have great friends, I have a great spouse, but, you know, they've seen me do things where if I came up and said, oh, I really want to, you know, do this thing, they might go, ah. You did try that a while ago. That didn't work out so well for you. <laughs> and sometimes you know? they say it with love because they're trying to protect you, right? They say it with love. But it does come with this. But no, I don't think that's yeah. for you. It comes with judgment and it comes with agenda because mm. they care. Mm. And it's not that as a coach I don't care because I do, <laughs> but it's from a removed space. Yeah. And it's from me. My client will say to me, whether that's an organisation or an individual, this is, this is where I am, this is what I want, and this is the gap. And I, as a coach, get to work with them in the gap which is purely directed by who they are, their experiences, their triggers, their growth, their responsibilities. Um, I think, you know, with a lot of things, sometimes we try and fit people into a box. We try and fit people, oh, this is my formula of how you should get from A to B. It's why as a woman, I'm a very much a non-diet advocate. I just don't believe in them. Someone has a system that everyone should fit into. And with coaching, it's very individualized and very customized. It's who are you? What do you want? What is the best way for you to get there? Not what is the best way for me to get there? Which is, as you, as you say, it's so rare um, and therefore so powerful when you can, you know, really hold that space mm. or for someone actually to go, wow, I, I've got some options. Or, yeah, I've got you some options. And I have my own coach. That's how powerful I know coaching is, is that I have my own coach so that I have my space where I can check in and I can say, this is what's happening. This is where I'm a little bit confused. I need some clarity in this area. And I've been working with my coach long enough now that she knows me well enough to go, regarding what you said about this or what your value system is, it would seem to me that of the options you've mentioned to me, this may, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It just becomes this, it's never a, this is what you need to do. Yes. It's always, let's just check in with what you said you wanted. Does this still align with what you said you wanted? Yeah. And people, sometimes the answer is yes and sometimes the answer is, no, nah, I've changed my mind because we're allowed <laughs> to do that too. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Was it always coaching? Um, it's interesting. When I look back now, you know, I first started facilitating space for people when I was 14. So I landed at my foster parents and they were and still are very much churchgoers. And I would go to the lo local church with them on a Sunday, not because I was into it, but because there was a drama group and I started getting into drama. And then they asked me if I'd run workshops. So I started holding space for teenagers within drama and expression from the age of 14. So that was, you know, that was a long time ago now. I'm 44, about to turn 44. And so I would never have put the word coaching onto what I was doing because I, you know, coaching is so new in Australia. It's not so new in, in the US and it's not new necessarily within corporations, but for people to have coaches for, you know, for their own life is, mm. is a new thing. So I wouldn't have called it coaching. I then started, you know, my raw food business. And I suppose for me, starting Kemi's Raw Kitchen and working with women and food, I saw that so many women were shackled by their dress size and, and what the scale said. And it made me really angry. And I just realised so many people, women aren't living their lives because they're waiting to lose the five kilos. And it just made me think, what if you never lose the five kilos? So then what was your life about? The constant trying to be something. And I just realised that I wanted to start working with women on a deeper level. And at that point, you know, when I came into the raw food space, there was me and maybe a few other people. There weren't that many people. 
by the time Kemi's Royal Kitchen had taken off, a lot of people were coming in. And I thought, actually, I'm really happy to pivot and leave this space. I don't have any more recipes in me to share. <laughs> I have nothing more to say about the smoothies. Getting the out message there is getting out there. The getting out there. And actually, I want, I want to create a space where women can really own that they get agency and they don't have to be passengers in their lives. They actually get a say. I want to touch back in because you're right. It's Coaching is really new in Australia and I think there is still this um, stigma might be the wrong word, but really a sense of, well, if you've got a coach or and even that terminology, mm. life coaching, Australians, mm. I think still kind of screw their nose up a little bit yeah. and or life has to be horrendously bad Yes, um, for that to have happened. Something must be wrong mm. with you. There's, mm. there's some of those unsaid rules around uh, or even just statements that people may not then reach out for a coach. Um, what would you say or what what would be someone's experience? So if we were to, I guess, pull the veil back on, <laughs> say, the first coaching session, mm. what might that be like for someone if they're thinking about, oh, okay, it sounds it, but I'm not sure and maybe yes. it's not for me? Well, even before we go to pulling back the veil on a coaching session, I think there's a reason why people are, um, you know, there is a little bit of stigma around coaching. And it makes sense, you know, we live in a world where, you know, a 19-year-old can set up a Facebook page and say, I'm a, you know, I'm a life coach. Mm. Now, I'm sure that a 19-year-old could be a great life coach for a 13-year-old, but I don't want the 19-year-old to be my life coach because I need someone that's lived some life. Mm. Um and so there, has, there hasn't been a lot of regulation around coaching until the ICF. So that's the International Coaching Federation, which is the oldest coaching body, which I'm accredited under and will continue to be credentialed and credit, accredited under. And so it makes sense for people to be wary, which is why it's really important to find a credentialed coach. Otherwise, you don't know what you're getting. Mm. Um, and it's interesting that people feel like their life has to be completely fallen apart because, to be honest, that's not when you need a coach. When your life has fallen <laughs> apart, things have probably got a little bit too far and maybe it's something else that you need to be looking for. So I always have a session with a client. The first session, we've already kind of vetted each other, so we have a, a session where we're, are we a good fit? Mm. You know, I know whether or not I can be of service and of value to someone within our first few communications with each other. And then the first session is similar to every other session. I will always start with what would you like to focus on for today's session? And the same client one week could bring, you know, I work with women in leadership and one woman may bring what's happening within her team. And then the following week she might say, my mum is coming to stay and I'm really struggling with my mum. And that's what we work on. And then the next week she might say, I've got to plan the family holidays, 40 of us, we live in four different countries and I really just need this space to brainstorm and to clarify how this is going to be done. So whatever it is that the client comes to in that space, that is what I'm there for. And what's different than with a friend, having a conversation with a friend, is that there are always actions that need to be taken. And as we've said, there's no judgment. And there's always actions that need to be taken. And there's always a cementing of learnings and growth that have happened through that. Example, this morning I had a client and she said, I've just realised that I have now started to ask for so much more and that people still like me. <laughs> and I have realised that I'm clearer in the way that I communicate with my staff members and with my partner and with my daughter. And so for her, having this space that she can come, where she can look at where are my triggers, where do I get nervous? And we spoke about, I said, why have you been avoiding these difficult, challenging conversations? She said, because I'm scared that people won't like me. And I said, welcome to the world of human. Mm. That's a brave thing to say, right? Yeah, it's a brave it is. Place to get yeah, to. it's a brave place to get to. And then for me to say that, it has her exhale. So, oh, it's not just me. It's like, no, 
everyone's scared that people aren't going to like them. <laughs> everyone. Mm. And what we get to do is to check in and go, ah, oh, I'm feeling that feeling where I'm why they're not going to like me. But as a leader in this particular client situation, what am I committed to? I'm committed to empowering. So I said, so if you want to empower this staff member, what's going to be at the forefront, empowering her or her liking you? And the decision was very clear for her. Yes. And then she committed, I would have that conversation with her by this time next week. These are aha moments. I I heard something recently. It was, um, you know, a lot of those kind of beliefs or thoughts that do come up, um, the ones that we go, we've all had them, they're actually not even yours. They're not even unique. That's right. (laughs) You're really, yes, exactly. really boring. We've all got them. Exactly. I've got something to tell you. You're really not that special. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. uh, And even the ways we navigate, um, they aren't unique because we have different experiences and triggers, but you could probably, you know, I could probably count on both hands the way that we navigate the challenges in our life, you know, the amount of time I've been working, coaching, they all do sort of fit into certain folders and it just depends which folder's been mixed with, you know, with the other one. But it all comes down to am I valued, am I worthy, am I loved, am I connected, do people care? What might prompt someone to come to coaching? Oh, Ali, I have had people say... I have no passion, I have no purpose. I want to work with you to get clarity on that. Have people say, I've just become the leader of a new team and they've all come from different areas and I'm really feeling a loss of confidence in my leadership right now. I've had people come and say, my father passed away four years, I need to write his headstone, I haven't done it, I need to do it, I just need a space that I can choose the right words. Can you be that person for me? Um, It varies and that's one thing I love about my work is that I have to be present. In one day I can go from a headstone to, I don't know, to, to working out strategic goals and outcomes for a leadership team, you know, in one day. So I have to be present and I have to be willing to grow and expand. Um, and my clients teach me as much as I'm there for them. You know, they will sometimes say things that will just be a light bulb for me of, oh, that's how I can contribute in this other area or oh, that was a missing here when we last spoke. And so it's very, it's movable. I think something, I sometimes have had clients that will have a therapist and they work with me at the same time. And, and some of the issues that people have said with therapies, it's really great because I get to go into the wound and we get to stay there and just kind of mess around in it. But some people get to a point, I don't want to be in the wound anymore. Like I've done that work and now I want to know how to move forward from that. And they want to have a very distinct relationship that's about moving forward. You've written a number of books and one of your books is called um, The Gift of Asking and it's such a powerful book. Actually, when I was researching for our catch-up, I went to look for it on my shelf and realised that I've loaned it to a friend and I haven't got it back yet. <laughs> it's one of those books that once you get, everyone will want it and you want to share it with everyone. Um, and really you dive in and it's, mainly for women, I mean, it's a message for everyone, Mm. but it's mainly for women, is really around this, the pain of asking. Mm. And and I use that word purposely, pain, because it is something that uh, women don't do particularly well. There is kind of a bit of a pain point to come to asking. Um, What prompted you to, I guess, dive into that particular bit of research or that bit of work? I have been working with a number of clients, female clients, and I started to realise that that they started to sort of bat up against the same wall. So whether it was a woman that was maybe a startup starting her own creative business or whether it was a woman that was a C-suite, when it came to asking, they were really stuck. 
And it's interesting because it does come back, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to not be liked. I don't want to be a burden. And all of these things, I think it is a big thing for women because we're raised to just be available and we don't have needs. We just have to make sure that we cater to everyone else's. And it takes a lot of unlearning and a lot of practice to unlearn that. And so I just realised around asking. So I started asking my audiences when I was, you know, doing workshops or facilitations, I started asking the women in the room, who loves to contribute to other people's lives? You know, who likes to support other people, help? And everyone would put their hands up. And then I would say, and who likes to be contributed to and supported? And no one would put their hands up. And I just say, there's a mismatch. So we want to give, but we're not allowing people to give back to us. Why don't we ask for help? And and I'm asking, like, why don't we ask for help? I don't want to be a burden. I don't want people to think that I'm weak. Um, And that was an interesting thing, the weakness one, because that was something that had come from how people had been raised within their families. It seemed to be that weakness was a, was a, that asking was a weakness to say, I don't know how to do this. I need your help was a weakness. So it was a case of just breaking all this down. Then it took me back to my childhood. And for me being in those situations, I would never ask because I had to be really grateful that someone had decided to look after me for a little while. So I was, I was not an asker at all. And I'm not sure when I started asking for things, but I'm a mega asker now. <laughs> and, um, and because also I know that, that asking provides clarity and it provides choice for others. That when we clearly ask, the other person can clearly say yes or no. And I talk about in the book how to navigate a no, because that's what we're scared of. It's absolutely. And even when I was sitting and thinking, like, you know, I was going to ask you the question, what, <laughs> what happens if the biggest thing that we're scared of is that we ask, yes. we have the courage to ask, yes. and then someone says no. Yes. But not only do they say no, but they judge us for asking. Yes. What, what well, do we do then? <laughs> I find that interesting because one thing is how do we, how do we know that we've been judged for asking? Because generally that, that will comes back to us. Unless the person says, I cannot believe you've asked that, which some people might, but we're still worthy enough to ask in the first place. And we're not always going to get a yes. And to be honest, sometimes it's really good that we don't get a yes. You know, but there are ways to navigate the no. So it may be, um, okay, I understand that you're a no now. Could it ever be a yes? The person would say, oh, well, in what circumstance? Oh, well, if you were willing to do A, B and C, or if we could move that there like that, or this could happen, or we could make the time a little bit longer, then it could be a yes. And then the choice comes back to us. Am I willing to do what they've stated to get my yes. And once again, that could be a yes, that could be a no. Um, And sometimes the no, what comes after the no is grief, you know, and disappointment and upset and the feeling of rejection. And then the choice is, so what am I going to do now? Do I need to ask somebody else? Do I need to ask differently? Do I need to grieve that this is never going to happen? And I had a client with that around a relationship and I write about that in the book in a relationship, it had ended, but had it really, you know how those ones mm, go. Yes, yeah, yeah. We keep one toe in, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it was that interesting, it was the pain of asking the question. And all I said to her was, what do you need to ask that you're not asking? And she said, I need to ask him, is it a no for now or a no forever? You know, and she asked and he said it was a no forever. And then she had to grieve the relationship. And I asked her, how does it feel to have that information? She said, it's sad and I'm hurt, but now I can move on. Mm-hmm. because so otherwise she was in the pain of limbo for mm-hmm. I think it'd been like six months of the you know maybe if I do this maybe mm-hmm. maybe maybe <laughs> whereas right. he knew nothing, there's nothing to be done this is it um so once again it comes back to having agency you know ask for the thing ask for clarity ask for more time ask for ex- one of the biggest things for me around writing this book was um I have an asking manifesto 
and I was working at a wellbeing festival facilitating some workshops and I had said to the audience, you know, let's go on an asking adventure. We've got two days together. Let's go on an asking adventure. And I said, do you know that you could go to the, um, there were food trucks. I said, do you know that you could go to one of the food vans and instead of avocado, you could ask for more chutney? And one woman audibly went, oh, like this. Wow. And I went, what? She goes, what do you mean? I said, you can ask them if you, if you don't like something on your plate, you can ask to sort of swap it for another thing. She just stood there looking at me and everyone else around there was saying, didn't you know that I do that all the time, blah, blah, blah. And I said, see, what we get here, this is a demonstration that some of us are really strong at asking in some areas and not so strong in others. Because I said to her, I said, what are you good at asking for? She said, I can ask my husband for what I need with a drop of a hat. She said, but for me to ask for food to be changed on my plate means that I'm greedy. Wow. You know, so once again, it comes back to the individual's experiences and the individual's triggers and the individual's humanness, as I call it. So it's almost being forensic about what are the areas that I, A, that I do well in. Yes. So that I know that I'm capable yeah, of Yeah, that you can right. do it. Exactly, I know that absolutely. I can. Yeah. And then what are those, those areas that I'm avoiding? Yeah, and the way to look at what am I, where am I not asking is where am I feeling overwhelmed, where am I feeling resentful, where am I frustrated and where am I angry? Because generally that can go back to there's something I'm not asking for. What does that look like? I guess just even for people... Um, listening, if you're looking for things like feeling resentful mm-hmm. or, or feeling angry, what are the kinds of things people might say? What might they do for you to go? I cannot believe, cannot believe he didn't do that. Or I cannot believe he did do that. Or I cannot believe she did or didn't. I cannot believe that she would even think to ask for extra pay when I'm not getting it and I do so much more work. And the question is, have you asked for extra pay? And generally the answer is No. <laughs> Though they're really good indicators. Mm-hmm. Continually having the same conversations about a thing will mean that there's probably someone in your life or in the world that could support you to have that thing turn out. And then it's, are you willing to ask? And I have a process called the asking process, and it is, were you frustrated, overwhelmed, angry, resentful? If there was someone that could support you in that area, who would that be? Generally, people know very quickly. And people want to go and, oh, I need to ask myself, which can be a really good way of avoiding and procrastinating. Right. Because they've probably been trying to ask themselves that for a long time. Mm. Um, and if you were to ask them something, what would you ask them? So where am I frustrated? Where am I frustrated? Who, who, might... who could make a difference yep. to this area? What would I ask them if, and I always say, if you were to ask them, because people start getting a little bit anxious. Are you like, telling I'm me gonna, to? Oh, yes. God, I've got to. <laughs> if you were to ask this person something, what would you ask them? Mm. And it's normally, I would ask if I can leave work early on Fridays to go to my daughter's netball, for example. Yeah. And then the next question is, why are you not asking? So to get clear, why are we not, why are we avoiding it? Because I think I will be seen as a lazy worker. Mm. or that I'm too big for my boots, or why does she think she's so special? And that's the one to dig into, And I that's imagine. the one to dig. Well, sometimes it's not even, sometimes we don't even need to dig into it. We just need to acknowledge that that's what's there. Articulate it. Because yeah. part, of, part of our experience as being human is that some of those things are always going to be there. The am I good enough? Am I valid? They're all going to be there. But when we can look at what our particular strain of that looks like, and we can just go, oh, okay. Okay, that's me doing that. And then the last question of the asking process is, and are you willing to ask? And once people get really clear on what the thing is, who the person is, what they're going to ask, why they're not asking, and then they get given the choice of are you going to ask or not, 
it gives a lot of clarity and a lot of agency once again. And the majority of people, and I say, if I'm facilitating a space, I say, this isn't a, oh, I'm going to be inspired in the moment and not doing anything. Only commit to asking if you're going to ask Mm. because it's your life. You may now know that you're what you have to ask, but you're not ready to ask yet. But just having the clarity of what it is, is enough for you to just sit with right now. But the majority of people do end up asking. I really love that almost giving a, a bit of a process and, and that the commitment is the last thing on that yes, process, right? Because yeah. often we think, well, and and even learning to ask for things. And it's been a massive thing that I've I've had to learn and um, I have an amazing EA who's helped me with that. <laughs> I'm so used to just going, I'll do it, I'll yes, do it. And she yes. goes, no, 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 hand it over. Yes. I'm like, okay. Yes. Um, and she wants to and she yes, does. And, and that's she, the empowering. That's, her, that's like, the empowering of others as well. In our asking, I'm not strong in this area I know you are could you support me that has the other person elevated in themselves Mm, and then yeah absolutely they then they get that question answered am I validated am I of worth Mm. yes because I need your support right now yeah but I love it that um, that process allows you to go through that without demanding the ask straight away so how do we get to that and then sit on the commitment until you're ready until you're ready because this this is what I was saying again going back to Coaching is about customising to the person that is in front of me in that moment. And as I, you know, the more that I work with my clients, we create a deeper level of intimacy and I get to know them and they get to know me and I can ask them to stretch themselves from a place of compassion, but also from a place of we're in the gap, we're working in the gap. You have somewhere you want to go and you've said that maybe you're going to ask this person one thing and my invitation to you is that you ask them that as well. And my client will either say yes or no. Generally, they say yes, because I'm present to to them in that moment that they're then like, okay, that scares me, but I am willing to do that, you know, and then they get their outcome on the other side of that. Is there anything that you wish that women would ask for more of? Is there anything, any areas in particular? Oh, that's a great question, in particular. Again, again, I know that's very generalised, but is there particular things... This is a tough one because I can already hear listeners kind of going, but I do that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So this is your challenge, people. Yeah, that's right. I think there are two areas. I think within career, within careers, I think Mm. women can ask for more within their careers. And Gosh, so many. I'm oh, yeah. just thinking about the conversations okay. I've had. Yeah, okay. People going tough conversations yeah. and number one is more money. Yeah. And it's yeah. bizarre, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Because we can only be confident in, to ask for more money if we're clear on what our worth and our value is. Yeah. And sometimes that is that is the conversation I'll have with a client. What do you bring to the company? And to actually have them, because normally we're in what I don't bring or that person over there did that and I haven't been here long enough and I haven't. Where are you good? Why are you employed? Why do you even get a pay packet? And having it be tangibly written down in front of us is really powerful. So that would be one, is definitely women within their careers and women within their intimate relationships. Yeah. Um, I think we assume, we assume that our partners should know what we want mm. and they have no idea. And just because, and we shouldn't assume and they shouldn't assume that because we wanted that five years ago, that's still what we want. Remember, we can change our minds. Yeah, exactly. We're allowed to change our minds. They're allowed to change our minds. And, you know, when we we look at, um, you know, the divorce rate, I think it's one-on-one now, the divorce rate. It, you know, it's not also men as well. You know, I am, I'm in a relationship with a, with a man 
And also men can struggle to ask what they want in relationships too. Um, And and it's different for the genders what it is that we need to ask for. But I think if women were able to let go of that he should know or she should know and make sure that they do know. And then they get to choose once again whether or not they want to provide, whatever that is, you know, whatever that thing is. It's my favourite chapter in your book uh, and it's it's the chapter around mind reading and it's the shortest chapter (laughs) because the only thing it says in there is there are none. Yeah, there are no mind readers. I actually once had um, a lady at a workshop that I was facilitating at a conference and she said, I've been married to my husband for 24 years. He should know what I want by now. And I actually, I was actually quite visibly moved in, in her saying that because I said, he doesn't know and he wants to know. And there's a level of punishment that goes on when we refuse to let them know because we're setting them up, we've already set them up to fail. So if you were coming from the premise of he doesn't know, and I said, and also, do you know what he, have you asked him what he needs or wants? And she's like, no. Mm. I said, so there's the adventure. (laughs) Find out 24 years on what each of you needs. Yeah. Yeah. New it's chapter. Like a, a new relationship. Yeah, a new it? relationship. New conversations. Yeah. yeah. Um, so powerful to kind of stop and go, where am I not? Yeah. Yeah. Where <laughs> am I not? Triggers? Yeah. Where am I not asking? And what are those triggers? Why have I got that tight feeling in my gut again? Why don't I want to walk into this room? Why do I always feel like that when I'm with this person? Yeah. It can be a really good inroad. Is there anything that you still hesitate to ask for? Oh, my goodness. I don't struggle to ask for, like, bigger pieces of cake at cafe counters. <laughs> I'm really easy with that one. Um, I, think sometime, I think sometimes for me um, as a woman of colour, and I speak about that a little bit in, in The Gift of Asking as well, I still sometimes have to take off those shackles of you should just be grateful that you get to be here, you know, whatever that space is. So sometimes I have to check in with, oh, that's what's going on here. You know, why am I feeling like... Um, why am I feeling like something isn't working in the way that I want to? And it's like, oh, because you're limiting yourself because you're going back into that. You should just be grateful that you get to be here. So that's something that I'm, but, but for me, as I was saying, if we know what our version of that is, then we can get it much quicker. And then we can work out, okay, so what do I need to do to move that forward? So what do I need to ask for? Oh, I need to ask for a seat at the table or I need to ask to have an opinion there. Sometimes I don't even ask, I just give it. Because that's the other thing. I don't believe that we always have to ask. We don't, you know, because the other side of that is that women have always had to ask for permission. And Mm. sometimes we really shouldn't be doing that at all. And we should just be getting in there. Our presence is the permission. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's what it would be for me. It's that having grown up with you should just be grateful to be here. That can be something that, you know, which is why I have my coach. Because then she will say to me, is that what's playing? Is that, mm. what, is that what's playing here? You've got that old track yeah, on again. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's what it is, you know? Yeah. 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 And hopefully just shorten the time between when that shows up. Yeah, and when exactly. We do and then when you do it. something about it to move it forward. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So one of your kind of mantras is how to, empowering women to nourish themselves. Yeah. And obviously that's been a big part of your own personal journey. One of the ways that I know that you do that is via connection with nature. But you don't just get out in nature. You run in nature. Mm, I do. <laughs> and you run long distance. <laughs> sometimes I shuffle. But sometimes it's a bit of shuffling involved. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, what does this time spent running through treks and trails, what does oh. it give you? Oh my goodness. I, I have, I have a thing for trees. (laughs) 
I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. It's not. It's not illegal. But um, <laughs> I I have a relationship with trees that I think I've only really been able to own for myself over the last few years with running. So I started running seven years ago now. Thirty-seven. Was yep, there anything that prompted that? Or? Actually, it was. It was how I was fueling my body. So I was eating a lot of raw food and live food, and I was putting life into my body. And I had a lot of energy. And instead of staying up until two o'clock in the morning, which isn't well-being, I thought I need to use this energy. So I started to run. I started off with a half marathon. And with a couple of friends, actually my husband and I decided to do a half marathon. We had a couple of friends that were going through a relationship crisis. And we decided between us that we wanted to... My husband and I kind of committed to people's relationships. And we thought it'd be really good for them to focus on something together, you know, that's forward moving. And we invited them to do this half marathon with us. So it was amazing. We trained together and then we did this race. And at the end, my husband said to me, you're going to do a marathon one day. And Ali, I cannot tell you how disgusted I was that he even really? said that. Really? I'm not interested. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. I, I was just, I thought, do you know me at all? Why do you think I'd want to do that? And then I decided for my 40th birthday, I'd run a marathon. <laughs> and not only was it a marathon, it was actually a 45K, um, so a little bit longer than an average marathon. And that marathon for me was around meditating. So what was interesting actually was when I got on that starting line, it was the Great Ocean Road Marathon, which is a road marathon, and there's a difference between trails and road marathon. Different community, different culture. And at that start line, I, w- I was given... What, what's your time? What have been your splits? What have you... Duh, 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 numbers, numbers. What, how do you measure success? How you... Duh, duh. And I remember just thinking in my head, I just wanted to kind of run along the ocean and meditate on my life up until this point. <laughs> and I just thought, and I feel like... And I'll stop at 45. Yeah, exactly. And I'll stop and then that'll be it. Um, and then I did my first trail marathon and I had that feeling of, oh my goodness, I think this is what my body... It wasn't a marathon, actually trail run. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And just to be out in the bush. And I was a child that was... In some ways, my first foster parents, I was out fruit picking my summer holidays. I lived in Kent. We were out, you know, come back when the street lights were on, that sort of thing. But as I got older, you know, life kind of became a little bit safer. I think I needed life to be safe. And so I wasn't really an outdoorsy type so much. But I just felt this kind of reawakening in me the more I was in nature and I realised I don't really want to run roads. I actually ran the New York Marathon November last year and it was amazing. It's one of the biggest road marathons in the world and it was an amazing experience. But I got to about 30 kilometres and my legs felt like, you know, like lead. And I remember thinking running through an urban environment feels like my energy is being taken away from me. Whereas when I'm running through nature... Um, you know, I finished a 100k race a year or so ago and I still had energy left in me when I finished and I felt like there was this visible osmosis between my environment and myself, like there was this energy of life moving in and around each other and that's what can keep you running. Um, and I, you know, I just go a little bit, I don't know, I just become a little bit of a, I don't know what I could become like out there, but <laughs> a butterfly, you know, you're tired, you get to 73K and a butterfly comes out. And I choose, once again, choice, I choose the butterfly has landed there to just say to me, you're doing good one foot in front of the other, keep going, you know, because mm. that's what has me move forward. Um, and I just find nature incredible. You know, my favourite colour used to be red, like your scarf, bright red, and over the years it's become green. And one of my favourite things is to sit in my garden. I'm a big gardener as well. It's another way that I'm very much in contact with nature. So that's my one of my happy places is my garden. And to just sit and watch leaves rustle. Like I can just sit and just watch the leaves. And it's how I fill my cup in a way that I can then give to my clients. Because my work does involve me being present, but I need to be full 
to be present. So that's how I constantly keep filling my cup. And is that the reason for the long distances? Because there's something to be out in nature. There's a whole other thing to do for 100 kilometres. Like, I think, you know, I will have people say to me, oh, you know, but this is your ninth marathon, so. And I'm like, but I never get to that starting line assuming I can do it. I've never run a marathon until I've crossed the finish line because like life, stuff happens. And with a trail marathon, you have to have your fueling right. You have to not trip over a rock. You have to have the rock. You have to not get too cold. You can't get too hot. You can't, you know, there's all these things, rookie mistakes. You know, someone will come along and say, you know, do you want one of my gels or do you want one of my bars? And in that moment, you need it. But that just turns your stomach to mush. Like there is, there is never a guarantee that you're going to finish a race. And I love that. I love, once again, you have to be present. I love that with trail marathons, you're jumping over lakes and you're rock scrambling and there's tree roots and there's stones and there's mud and there's, you have to be present. Like you have to be so incredibly mindful. But the other thing that I also love, I think you get to see the best of human within trail marathon races, within that community, because, because we all know that at any moment we could have made a wrong move. Everyone is so willing to be there. Everyone is like, have my bar, have my water. You know, this race was about me finishing, but actually this race is going to be so much better if we finish together, you know? So it, it's, it's a really great space for people to contribute to each other and celebrate each other. And I love crewing races. So where I'm not running, but you get to be as part of the race because you're helping someone else achieve that goal. And you're out there and it's cold and they might come in and shout at you because they're tired and they're cold. And But you all get to celebrate at the end of their achievement. So just the whole community and that environment of everyone is pushing themselves to see what they're, how amazing their body is and how amazing their mind are is. Um, and then you all get to celebrate together at the end of the day. And then, you know, then I'm in my garden the next day. <laughs> Hobbling. In nature. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> avoiding stairs. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> avoiding stairs. <laughs> um, obviously, it has a bit of that addictive nature, but what would you say to someone who might be listening and goes, oh, that sounds great, mm. um, but I live and work in the city. Mm. I, um, you know, we, We're coming into the winter season or we're, we're in the winter season when this will come out. Um, it's dark when I go to work. It's dark mm. when I finish. How do we make the choice? to do those things that we know or something is drawing us to when life is, seems so busy? Yeah, see, this is where I'm not going to be very nice and this is where people hire me <laughs> because I'm not a coach that would... I, I, where there are things in our lives that we're committed to and there are things in our life that we aren't. And when we're clear what we're committed to, we make stuff happen and that's it. And it doesn't actually matter whether... Um, whether it's cold when we get up in the morning or whether we do this job, we just make a, it may not look exactly as we want it to look at the beginning. So it may be, yes, I'd love to do a marathon, but work is really hard. I have a project. So then there's, well, maybe defer it. So you can see that you've got a massive project at work and you want to do this, but really with three kids at home, you're looking after your mum, would it be better for you to have the marathon goal for next year? And actually what you're going to do for the next six months is build up a base of fitness for example, and I always just throw out options. It's not my job to give advice. That's what friends are for, which we all ignore anyway. Yes. Um, it's, I just throw out options and just ask, does this land, does this land, does this land? But I think we have to be really honest with ourselves. And I ask my clients to be honest because that's where the work gets done. So there's the, oh, I wish maybe that'd be nice. And then there's, I am absolutely 100% committed to, to shifting my level of well-being and health. Because once we make that decision, that's when we'll take action. Is that what it means to create your own life? Yes. Is that something you talk about? Yeah. It's what are you committed to? So I, 
you know, I do have a life that I've created for myself, one for myself as an individual, one with my husband within our marriage and one with my family and my community and my friends. And I'm really clear what I'm committed to. And within that realm, that's where I am 100% present. Everything else outside of that is that that would be nice, but. Mm. And then I'm not, I just don't put my energy there. I put my energy in what I'm committed to. And that, you know, there's kind of my life commitments. And then there's things that change yearly and monthly. Um, but I think we have to be knowledgeable of what our shiny, sparkly objects are. You know, um, I think people can be very quick to, you know, grab their shit. But is that what you're committed to? The thing that I go, oh, that sounds good. Oh, or someone else yeah. is doing that. Yeah, or, or I should, should be, be doing that. Or maybe I should. Is that what you're committed to? And when we have that space to look at, no, actually it's not. It's actually not. Or yes, it is, but I'm, I'm pretending that I am, but actually I'm not. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing. Just have that space to work out what am I really committed to mm. and what are the things that I think I should. And that's the thing I, you know, I'm not a fan of us shooting all over ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and we do that all the time. All the time. You know, and the client would say, oh, but I feel like I should. And I'm like, well, let's just stop right there because already there's something. So you could. And the next question is, do you want to? Are you committed to? And sometimes it's, no, I don't want to, but I am committed because I said that I would look after my mother at this point. So it's tough, it's challenging, but I'm committed to it because commitment is different to liking to or wanting to or wishing to. So stopping and going, what is it that I want to, and even just looking at where you're currently prioritising and getting real with yourself yeah, sounds like real. a really yeah. key thing. The the other part of that, um, and I kind of want to link this back to the, the gift of asking because what we're doing is encourage people to ask. Mm. But when we get really clear on the stuff that we want to prioritise in our life mm. that um, can result in us now saying no oh, to yes. things. So yes. it's one thing to hear a no, it's a yes. whole other thing to say no. Yes. Particularly if you're the person who is encouraging people to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm going to get your expert opinion yeah, so I what have ways a, we say no. I have a strong no practice and I actually say no to more than I say yes to. And I'm very comfortable in saying I've never said no and regretted saying no, except for the other day. When I was in a shop and this little girl came up to me, her name was Lois, and she, she saw me and she said to her mum, mum, she doesn't have any hair. And the mum said, well, everyone's different. And then she said, and mum, some people are blue and some people are brown and some people are new. And like she was going on this whole thing and introduced me to her. And then she came up to me and she said, oh, and the mum said, Lois, are you going to ask the lady a question? And Lois said, mum, can you ask? And mum said, no, Lois, if you would like to ask, you need to ask the question. She was about five. And Lois said, you come to our house for tea oh <laughs> and it was just so beautiful and I couldn't because I had another commitment but later I thought about it and I thought I couldn't have moved that commitment but I would have loved to have said yes yeah. I would have loved to have gone on the adventure with Lois to her house and just seen what happened but generally I want because I know what I'm committed to I'm clear what my values are I don't regret saying no so how do you do it practically practically no I think I can't remember who said it I think it was a woman that said no is a full sentence and then because we want to be liked, there's also, no, I'm unavailable to do that. I'm sorry. There's I'm overcommitted at the moment, so I'm unable to do that. There is thank you, you know, and always being gracious and polite. You know, there's no need to be rude. Um, I'm sorry I can't make the gluten-free, egg-free, vegan muffins for you tomorrow morning. <laughs> I actually can't. I'm a terrible <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And I actually can't. And actually no <laughs> one can real. make the egg-free meringues, <laughs> no. you know, because there's, well, you know, sugar-free meringues. Um, but to be able to say, I can't do that, but I can bring a plate of watermelon. Would that help? And then once again, the person gets to choose. 
actually 17 people who offered the watermelon option. <laughs> we really need the muffins. Apples? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but once again, it's saying no. And, and it is practice. I have had clients say to me, I literally could feel my palms clammy and sweaty, but I'm so glad that I said it. Mm. Because sometimes we have to look at, and this is what Brene Brown speaks about, we can say no in the moment or we can say yes and resent it for a very, very long time. And the impact it has on our well-being, on our relationships, on our commitment to other projects. You know, that in, are we willing to be uncomfortable in that moment so that we can actually be comfort and within integrity for the rest of the time? Can you say yes and then say no? Yes. And you can start a business and then not like it anymore. And you can be with someone and not love them anymore. And you can paint the house green and then decide you wanted it purple, although that would be an interesting conversation. <laughs> But yes, you can. we are allowed to change our minds. That's what agency looks like. And it doesn't mean, I think, it doesn't mean they won't be upset. That's the thing. We are going to live our lives and there are people that are going to be upset. And sometimes we can mitigate that upset and sometimes we can't because it's over there with the other person because we've triggered something over there with them. And sometimes we can have conversations where we can say, I know this is going to be a challenging conversation. And what I'm committed to in our relationship is that we have respect and that we communicate in supportive ways. And then you say the thing and you can say, and if you feel that I'm being disrespectful in what I'm sharing with you, please let me know because that's not at all what I want. We're allowed to preface conversations when we know they're going to be challenging so that we can actually create respect for the other person, respect for ourselves. I was talking to a client the other day and I said, you know that you can pull out of the conversation in the middle? She said, what do you mean? (laughs) This is a a conversation with a business partner and I said, If you feel like it isn't going well, you're feeling overwhelmed or he's getting defensive or that you can say, actually, I think it may be good for us to stop this conversation now. Shall we have it again tomorrow? Would you like to think about it for 24 hours? Shall we talk about it next week? We're allowed to stop conversations. We don't have to go on to the death because sometimes that is where it ends Mm. with the death of respect, the death of relationship, the death of, you know, understanding, compassion. So all of those things, we're allowed to pivot, we're allowed to shift, we're allowed to grow. In fact, I think we must grow because the other option isn't, isn't great. It's just mm. stagnation and um, resentfulness and unfulfillment. And we're allowed to change our minds all the time. Yeah. Ask for what you want, know where you want to go and, yeah. be, and give yourself permission. I yeah. think that's often that, that, uh, that realisation that however it is, whatever that fits mm. for you. Yeah, that, and I think as work. well... Giving yourself permission to create the space to work out what it is you want and where you want to go. Giving yourself permission to create the space to go, what do I actually want for myself now? And where am I still living what other people wanted of me? What am I living for myself now? And where am I living? Because I know that society will tick those boxes. Now, I have so many clients that are, it's a friend of mine um, who um, used the phrase, I'd never heard it before, of corporate refugee. You know, she said, I'm a corporate refugee. And she said, I got to a point where I ticked all of the boxes and realised that the people that I was working with loved their jobs and I didn't. And I needed to create something for me. I haven't heard that before. I know, I'd never heard it. And it just it just kind of summed up. She needed to create her own thing because she realised she'd been living for others and now it was time for her to start living for herself, which was scary because she'd only lived for others for 40 years. You know, so it wasn't like, oh, okay, and now I'm off <laughs> into the world. <laughs> it was very challenging. There were conversations to be had. There were friendships that were lost. There were people that let go of her. She had to let go of people. And I know that she says the life I'm living now is the one that actually honours who I am. 
but it wasn't easy to get there, but it was worth getting there. It's going to be hard along the way. Yeah, it's like a marathon, you know. It's it's hard, but at the end when you cross the finish line, no one can take that feeling away. So it's worth doing the hard stuff. It's worth doing the hard stuff, creating the space for the hard stuff, yeah. And and one thing as well that I I think it's kind of become a little bit of a mantra for myself is I don't know where, I, I missed the memo that said you have to do life on your own. And I don't know where society has constructed that. I don't know where asking for support in any way, in any way, I don't know why, where that suddenly became a weakness. And I really want to kind of smash that model that actually to ask for support is a, is a way of displaying strength. This is where I know I'm strong. This is where I know I'm struggling. This is where I know I'm weak. And I don't really care that I'm weak in that area because that's not what I'm committed to. But this is where I know I'm weak and it's actually stopping me from being or getting to where I want. And actually, I need support in that area. Um, I think there's incredible strength around saying, I need support, you know, I need support with dinner. I need support with the kid school run. I need support with this assignment. I need support in booking the holiday, whatever it is. But as human beings, we actually want to contribute to each other. And it's a really empowering experience when we get to do that. Yeah, we get to do it together. And I think my realisation in that is that you actually give other people the chance to live their thing yeah. by asking. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, my goodness, I would love to be the one to help you build the shed. Yes. You know, I've been dying for you to ask. I've been dying for you to oh ask God. me. Exactly, exactly. I want to come full circle. So the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Yes. When you hear that term, what does that mean to you? It really does mean living your life unapologetically. It really, I think, for women especially, for me being a woman of colour, there are so many ideas put onto us of who we should be and what a woman is and what a black woman is or what a what 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 it is and to be able to say do you know what maybe I'm some of that and I'm going to take that but the other I'm going to create for myself so for me a standout life is living a life that honors who you are and it's a journey and it can be really challenging and it's always worth it because you know, sometimes, you know, people that we do legacy work and we ask the questions around legacy, what do you want your legacy to be? And I'm a fan of what's your legacy for the, for the day? You know, how do you want to feel by the end of today? But by the end of your life, do we, do we want the tombstone to say she ticked all the boxes, you know, or she lived a life that honoured her? And, and, and that incu- included connection with others and community and relationships and friendships and being of service. You know, that is what that is what I think a standout life is, one that honours you. And one where at the end, when everyone's talking about, I was at a funeral on Monday, so this is very, mm. sort of very close to me right now, is to have everyone in that room know exactly who you were. And they all feel the same thing. Yeah, they all feel the same thing. Mm. That's what a standout life is to me. Amen. <laughs> such a delight. Thank you so much, Kerry. Oh, such a pleasure. Thanks, Ali. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.